All right, sound is speeding. We are recording. Cool. All right, let's begin. Either they don't know, don't show, I don't care about what's going on in the hood. Yo, 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 yo. Welcome to Adventures in Black Cinema. My name is Desmond Thorne, and I will be your host and your film aficionado for the day. I am a filmmaker and a film programmer, so this is what I do. You're in good hands, as they say. So something that I've kind of noticed recently in this time of quar is uh, that I'm not really as good at taking care of things as I thought. Like, you know, I'm always the type of person who's just like, give me a cat, give me a dog, like I'm down. I know what to do in order to make this animal's life the best that it can be. And you know, people have given me a very nice compliments every once in a while and said that they feel like I'd be a good father, which is a very nice thing to say. But I started out quarantine growing some flowers uh, inside. That was going to be real cute and plant some flowers in my mom's garden, uh, some marigolds and some Shasta daisies. And they were doing really well inside. Like I got a grow light and everything. And like these flowers were really taking off and just amazing me. And I was learning a lot. Um, but then they had to go through the hardening off process. You know, after weeks and weeks, pretty much a few months of being inside, they have to go outside so they can get used to being outside. So their leaves can harden, they can get used to the wind, they get used to, to the elements, they get used to the heat, etc. And so I did that, I put them outside, but like, sometimes with me, it's kind of like out of sight, out of mind. So I haven't been taking as good care of them. Like, I haven't been watering them like I'm supposed to. You know, some fucking asshole cat or some shit in the neighborhood definitely dug a hole inside the marigold pot. So, like, I don't even know if those are going to bloom at this point. And the leaves don't look super great. So it's like, can I take care of things? Can I take care of an animal? Can I take care of a child? You know, those flowers are out there pretty much dying. But, I mean... We'll see, maybe next year, maybe, maybe next year. Send in the clowns, maybe next year, as they say. Uh, so I'm super excited about this episode that we have today. Today's episode is called Adventures in Culture and Color Schemes, and we are going to be getting into the nitty gritty of the film Rafiki. I'm excited about this film because first of all, it's really, really good. It's definitely a hidden gem that I am very excited to put on your radar today. And it's also uh, our first queer film that we're covering in the podcast. And it is also the first African film from the mother continent that we are covering in this film. This film is a Kenyan film. But first, before we get into Rafiki, 
I'm going to put you on to another hidden gem in a segment that we call Trust and Believe. Don't lie to me. I promise. I'm not lying to you. This is a hidden gem that I think you are going to love and really enjoy. Uh, today's Trust and Believe is a film called Jezebel. It is a film from last year, 2019. It's a semi-autobiographical film written and directed by Numa Perrier, uh, who is an up-and-coming filmmaker. She's made a few films before this, as well as directed a few episodes of Queen Sugar. I emailed back and forth with her last year for our festival, Festival Circuit. She is so dope. Love to see what happens next with her career. Um, and this film is about a young woman named Tiffany who begins to work as a cam girl to support herself financially. Um, the style of this film is very organic and feels very homemade. And I think a lot of times when people describe a film as feeling homemade, they're basically like calling it janky. I'm definitely not calling it that. I feel like the homemade feeling and nature of this film really immerses you into the subject matter and immerses you into uh, the characters' lives, as well as immerses you into uh, the time period. This takes place in the early 2000s, and it really kind of like looks and feels like that in a very authentic way, which can be hard for people to nail, us not being like super far. I mean, I guess we are almost like 20 years uh, away from the early 2000s but still the specificity of that in movies is uh it's a very nice touch and um there are great performances in this film um the lead tiffany is played by a young woman named tiffany Tennille. this is her first feature film performance and she knocks it right out the fucking park she's amazing and numa plays her older sister and also just acts the shit out of this role so so good there's such a strong and natural sense of sisterhood in this movie that you don't see a whole lot i feel like you see a lot of sisterhood and friendships uh, a lot of times in films and media, but to see just sisters being sisters and really supporting each other through pretty much everything is like a really beautiful thing to see. And it shows sex work in a film that's devoid of the male gaze. And that is also something that you don't see a lot, period. Even when you are a dude who is a good dude and, you know... The work that you're writing about sex work is like mostly devoid of the male gaze. It's still going to creep in there a little bit just by virtue. And I think in those cases, you have to have um, women who are consultants, women who are producers, women who are writers. Like you have to be absolutely surrounded by women so that you can be checked on those certain like male gaze things. Because even if you have the best of intentions and you're not a misogynist, you still need to be checked every once in a while. It's just the way that the world is. Um, and there's also an element of bisexuality in this movie that I think is really interesting. And I think it's very interesting that this film was not picked up in a lot of queer festivals, though it premiered in the queer section under the, like, the queer umbrella or like uh, the queer subheading at the South by Southwest Film Festival. Um, I think a lot of times when you're dealing with bisexual characters, you're wanting to see a ratio, a 50-50 ratio, but that's not how bisexual people operate. So to kind of portray that in a film feels untruthful to me. Um, 
I feel like the bisexuality in this movie, though it does follow a lot of Tiffany's relationship with a male client that she has, it is also very clear that she does fantasize about women and has an attraction to women. It's not the main focus of the story, but it's definitely there. Um, and it calls into question, like, how queer does a film have to be to be considered a queer film? Um, it's a question that I would like to talk about more and more as I think we begin to see more inclusiveness in the queer film genre. Um, so yeah, that's definitely something to think about when you're watching this movie. Um, it's so good, so slept on, I think, and it is streaming now on Netflix. You are here for one reason. Yes, 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 Rafiki. Ugh, just thinking about this movie just makes my heart and mind flutter. Oh, it's so good. But let me tell you a little bit about it in case you haven't heard of it. Need a little sum sum, little summary. Uh, this is a story about two young women named Kenna and Ziki who fall in love and begin a romantic relationship. Okay. The conflicts being that their fathers are political rivals fighting for the same position of MCA in this area, and that Kenya is a very homophobic society where gay sex is punishable by 14 years in jail. And that is a fact. That is not something that the movie is making up. That is a fact. Uh, so the two begin a uh, secret tryst. Uh, this film was released in theaters last year, Though it was on the festival circuit in 2018, it premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in 2018. It was the first Kenyan film to do so, and this film was banned in Kenya due to its homosexual theme and clear intent to promote lesbianism in Kenya, contrary to the law. Like, that is a quote. That is a literal quote. Uh, Wanuri Kayu, who is the director of the film, sued the Kenyan government in order to get the film shown so that it could be eligible for Kenya's submission to the Oscars. So the government lifted the ban for seven days to meet the eligibility requirements. And this run of the film, this seven-day run of the film, was sold out completely. So it shows that the people in Kenya, the people in Nairobi, really wanted to see something like this because, again, people want to see themselves represented on screen. There's such a uh, comfort and a sense of belonging that occurs either consciously or subconsciously when you see yourself represented on screen. And there are queer people in Kenya who want to see themselves represented. Um, this film actually did pretty well in the United States in terms of film festivals. Um, it won the Audience Award at Newfest, the festival that I work at, and it won this Audience Award in 2018, the, the year before I started working there. And uh, it was shown in many art houses uh, last year, including BAM, and it remains very accessible on streaming. Um, I first saw it at the Quad Cinema. The Quad is an art house in the Union Square area. It's a very interesting little place. There's a little cafe on the side. 
when you walk in, there's lots of, it's very colorful, very geometric, very angular space. The theaters are not named after numbers, no. You're not going to theater one, theater two, or theater three. You're going to theater Q, theater U, theater A, or theater D. These theaters are named after the letters in the word quad. So, like I said, these theaters are very, they're very small. They feel like, uh, they almost have like a big, uh, late 70s, early 80s living room feel to them. Um, the theater that I was in specifically for this movie was very like, it's very candy red in there. And let me tell you, the sisters showed up to this movie. Again, representation. People just always want to see themselves on the screen. People always want to see themselves represented. And that screening was completely sold out. Like, I feel like I missed the first five minutes of the movie because people were coming in and looking for seats, you know. I'm sorry, excuse me, pardon me. Having to like back up, stand up, you know, get people hopping up over your knees and shit like that. So the place was packed, the vibes were so good. And it was such a good place to see this movie because those uh, those screens, those theaters in the quad do have those really cool color schemes. And this movie has a really fucking cool color scheme. So contrary to a lot of Western thoughts about Africa, Western representations of Africa. A lot of times in these representations of Africa, you'll see a lot of warm colors, a lot of reds, a lot of oranges, a lot of yellows, a lot of things that are basically just trying to impress upon you that, you know, it's hot. It's a hot climate. And then uh, there will also be some browns that come in specifically in narratives where they're trying to show you a lot of poverty, etc. And this film is like, nah, we're not doing that. Winuri Caillou specifically chose this color scheme of neons and candy colors and pastels in this movie to show the actual vibrant nature of Nairobi and to show um, the future of what's happening there and to show the fact that like our culture and their culture are not so uh, disparate as you may think. Um, and as the Western narrative goes, this uh, color scheme gives the film such an energetic feel. And the thing about uh, being specific about your color schemes, and this is me talking as a filmmaker, is that you want to be very specific about the colors that you put into the costumes, the colors that you work with in terms of the production design. And by production design, I mean the sets, uh, the building of the sets, and then the set decoration of the sets, you know, putting up the wallpapers and the paintings and um, the fabrics, etc. And as well as the lighting scheme that you're going to use to light the actors and the set, you want these all to be working in conjunction together. So these are conversations that you have pre-production with your team to make sure that you're all on the same page and you're all telling the same story. Because what a color scheme does is tell you lots of elements of the story visually, because film is a visual medium, and you don't want to put all your shit in the script. You don't want everything about these characters and the story to be in the lines because you're just like, 
That's fucking boring. So Renuri used these color schemes not only to show you the elements of Nairobi that are absolutely like popping and vibrant and so alive. She's also telling you so much about these characters. Um, when you first see Ziki, oh my God, she has these cool ass dreads that are uh, pastel light blue and pastel light pink. And that color also matches her nail color scheme and also goes along with a lot of her costumes. A lot of her costumes do give off this like pastel neon vibe. And that tells you so much about this character's energy. The fact is that this character feels a kind of sense of freedom living in a place where she's not necessarily allowed to be herself, but she's still able to express herself through her clothes. And also with Kenna, you see Kenna's wardrobe kind of evolve more into that as the film goes on and as she gets closer to Ziki. And something else that really struck me about the colors in this film is the kind of patterns that you see in the fabrics. A lot of times in America, in Western civilization, Africa is primarily represented by the kente cloth, which comes from Ghana. It makes me think of when fucking Congress was up in there once the protest started during the pandemic with, you know, fucking kente cloth scarves and kente cloth masks and all that shit bowing down and kneeling like they're about to sing He Lives in You from The Lion King on Broadway. Like, what a weird vibe and what, it, and it's just so specific to the point where it's so clear that the education on Africa and where Africa is now is just like, it's just not taught. And it's not just white people, honestly. It is also a lot of African-Americans. So that's why like this will not be the only African film that we discuss on this podcast. Um, we will definitely be digging into other African films that I have loved in recent years because I feel like it's such a great tool to learn about what's happening now on that continent and to also know what's happening specifically in different countries and to see uh, the artistic expression of these artists and how it differs and how it's similar to ours. So the patterns and the fabrics that you see in this movie are very floral quite often, especially in um, Kenna's mother's home. You see a lot of florals and a lot of interesting like zany patterns and uh, Kenna's wardrobe specifically in the beginning and her shoes and her shirts, all kinds of things like that. And there's this beautiful, beautiful scene where the neon contrast is just pumped up where um, Kenna and Zeke go to this party and they're having a great time and there's such a sense of freedom in this scene. Uh, the black light is turned on, so the neon colors in the costumes and in Zeke's hair are just like popped out. There's also neon paint. It just is such a dope scene. And there is a set piece in this movie that is a caravan that Kenna and Zeke go to. This place where they feel like they can be alone together, kind of away from the worries of the very religious and oppressive society that they live in. Um, and this van really, again, brings together all these concepts that Renuri is trying to work with. 
It's very uh, floral in the production design. I feel like there's like floral curtains in there. It's very pastel. It just feels so homey and comfortable and lovely. And one part of this movie that like breaks my heart and also just like fills me with so much love is when um, Kenna says to Zeke when they're inside of the caravan, she says to Zeke, I wish this was real. And that means so much. It packs such a punch because she's not saying that she wishes the love between the two of them are real. Like, that is obviously so real. Um, And, you know, big ups to these two actors who just have amazing chemistry together. She's saying that she wishes that this moment that they have together was real and able to be extended outside of this van, this peace that they feel, this um, this sanctuary. She wishes that this sanctuary could just always, always surround them and they don't have to hide who they are. And that's what kind of brings me to the culture aspect of this movie. Um, Seeing modern Africa, I think, can be kind of jarring for some people, again, because of how Western thought is about Africa um, and kind of the images that we see in infomercials and images that we see in other movies and images that we see, you know from this Western perspective, the modernity that you see in this movie is so dope. You're just like, oh, like, their life and their vibe in terms of friendships and just like kicking it with each other is so similar to ours. And that's so dope and wonderful to see. And I think the other side of the coin is that There is a sense of uh, progress that I think that we feel in America. Like, we feel like we are so fucking ahead of other countries and other continents in terms of LGBTQ rights, etc. And, like, yes, that is true to a certain extent. Like... We can't be locked up in jail for 14 years like you can in Kenya for having gay sex. But there was a time where you could be and it wasn't that fucking long ago. There are still people alive today that were alive during a time where what they call sodomy was fucking illegal. You could be locked up for having gay sex and being who you are. Um... I mean, just recently the Supreme Court ruled that you can't be fired for being gay. And it's 2020. So you're saying last year someone could have fired me for being gay and I couldn't take them to court? Like, wowzers. Wowzers. And let's not forget gay marriage, 2015. Again, not that long ago. And there are also so many different state laws and minutiae that still do not protect gay people and certainly do not protect transgender people at all. So movies like this are a good reminder of where we have come from 
And also, like, how much further we have to go. We still got work to do, y'all. So, like, don't rest on your laurels for a second. I think there's also some uh, gender politics that are in this movie that are very similar to ours in that you do see a lot of moments and times where women are kind of being put in their place. They're being told what they can and they can't do kind of beyond the sexuality aspect, just really on the gender aspect. And um, again, speaking on the kind of freedom that Zeke feels, um, something that I love is one of the first scenes where you see Kenna and Zeke together kicking it and falling in love on this roof Kenna, um, Zeke rather, asks Kenna, you know, what she wants to do with her life. And Kenna's like, you know, I want to be a nurse. Um, and Zeke knows that Kenna is really, really smart and that she has very high marks. So Zeke's like, uh, well, there's a lot of nurses and that's a cool aspiration, but like, why don't you want to be a doctor? And she's basically like, yo, aim higher. You have what it takes. You can aim higher just doing what you've been doing and like really shoot for the fucking stars. And I think that that is such a real aspect of love that you don't see a lot in film, period. Um, That is a love that is not codependent. That is a love that is really like truly supportive and wanting to better the other person. And that's something that I love to see and I think it's something that it's very important for queer people to see for women to see for black people to see this whole aspect of like aim as high as you want you already have what it takes fucking go for it and that is a very consistent theme between the two of them um and Something else that kind of reminds me of the the freedom that Zeke kind of expresses in the movie. Uh, There's a lot of scenes in this film that take place in church. And I love that because uh, it's another similarity that I feel. Um, This reverend is often, um, especially in a couple scenes in particular, is uh, preaching against queer people, you know, saying that gay marriage is absolutely ridiculous. Queer rights is just like, what is that? It's the devil, you know. And though it comes off a bit harsher in this film, those are things that I heard when I was younger and going to church with my family. So you're still raising people in a society where they feel like they can't, be themselves and that is so dangerous um another uh scene i'm thinking of specifically that happens in the church is uh the scene between zeke and kenna they're sitting next to each other and as the preacher is like spewing this anti-lgbtq as bible uh speech zeke you know tries to hold Kenna's hand and, you know, Kenna pulls back and they eventually leave the church and they have this conversation of just like, Kenna's like, no, I, we can't do this here. We can't do this in this space. 
where everyone is fucking looking at us and all eyes are on us and I, all minds are against us. And that is actually how I felt um, in the first relationship that I really had um, as a young gay man was with someone who uh, I went to church with. Uh, this was someone who I was in the choir with at the time. I'm not going to say his name because I'm not entirely sure if he's out yet. I believe that he is. Um, but he also was part of a very religious family, more so than mine. Like his dad was so pious. He's one of those people that's so pious that like, you know he's probably the devil in disguise because there's nobody who's that intense for Jesus for, like, no reason. Um, it reminds me of the film uh, To Sleep With Anger, uh, starring Danny Glover, which is pretty much about that. It's so good. That's a hidden gem that we might get into at some point. But, yeah, the first dude who I was dating was a guy in the choir he was so cute, and um, we found each other out, our sexualities out, via MySpace. I think um, he messaged me because I had changed my orientation. I was, like, slowly coming out. And um, so he messaged me, and we got to talking and flirting. You know, sometimes we would meet after choir and go into the, the church basement bathroom and make out, which was just, oh, thinking about it makes me melt now. Like, I want to find, I want, <laughs> I'm about to go on Facebook after this and hit him up and be like, so, wow, uh, what you doing? Where you at? Because, like, my times with him, I think I felt the most secure, even though we were doing something that was, like, low-key dangerous. I mean, like, you're already dating somebody that goes to the same church with you and y'all are not out yet and y'all are young. So it's already risky. Um, but also the fact that we were like making out in the house of God in like the Lord's house um, was crazy. And I'm gonna let y'all in on a secret. We gave each other head in the bathroom of the church downstairs. You can't get me now, because I haven't been to church for years, and that was a long time ago. That was in my youth. I would never do something like that now, but I did. And, um, yeah, real good times, real good times. I miss him. I should hit him up again. But in that situation, I was definitely the Kenna. I was like, we can't do this. This is so against just like everything. We can't be in this relationship. I'm still like not out to my parents. I'm trying to hide myself and it eventually fizzled out. I think they also eventually went to a different church, but it was me. I blame myself. I wasn't ready. Um, and, uh, yeah, it also makes me think of the fact that this movie, Rafiki, in Swahili, means friend. Um, and that, I feel like, is something that is super universal for queer people. 
no matter where you live. Uh, I remember when I first started dating my boyfriend in college, even still, I wasn't like completely out to my family. I have always been the kind of person who's like, never really felt the need to come out per se. I never felt like I was living a lie per se. And I do feel like, um, you know, when you meet me, when you talk to me, it's just like, it's there. Um, and also, I do believe to a certain extent that coming out is a social construct made uh, for uh, straight people to feel more comfortable. Um, but I do realize the value in it. But I would introduce my boyfriend as my friend. This is my friend. We are friends. Um, and uh, that's just another part about the culture not really allowing you to feel like you can be yourself. And things are certainly getting better here. And I hope things are getting better in Kenya. But for us to kind of pretend that we are like leagues ahead of them, I, I don't think that's necessarily right, especially when you're, you know, including gay people who live in the South is a different story than us who live up here in the liberal North. And then the Midwest is different. You know, each place has their different vibe. And like I said earlier, we have to keep fighting for progress. Another similarity between our culture and the Kenyan culture in this movie is that most of this movie is actually in English. I would say about 60% of this movie is in English and the rest of it is in Swahili. And I think that's such a cool, dope choice and shows the kind of flipping between languages that even happens there. Um, so I think in conclusion that this is such an amazing film. It is simple in so many ways while also breaking rules and boundaries. I think when I first saw it, I thought the plot was like too simple. But then again, you wake up and you're just like, well, you know, this is a different place. There's a different set of rules. There's a different life. So I think those kind of quote-unquote simplicities that kind of like Romeo and Juliet feel that this uh, film can have sometimes, I think is almost necessary for it to exist. And it just really does break down those boundaries. And it absolutely goes into my top 10 queer films of the 2010s and is absolutely part of the new queer film canon, along with more popular films like Moonlight and Tangerine, etc. It's also important that this film ends on a hopeful note. A lot of queer films, even done by queer people, even done more recently, still end on a note of like loss or heartbreak or tragedy, death. But the fact that this film ends on a hopeful and loving note is just another thing that's so important for queer people to see, for black people to see, for women to see. To see that, you know, things may be very difficult and tough for you now, but there is hope, there is a light, there is a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And films by and about marginalized people really just need more of that. So like I said, this film is very accessible online. You can stream it on Canopy and you can also rent it on Amazon and iTunes. Check it out. All my life I had to fight. Yes, 
it is time for the You Better Act Award. And if it's your first time here at Adventures in Black Cinema, the You Better Act Award is an award that we give out every week to a black performance that is just so dope that we must shout it off the rooftops because, let's face it, Oftentimes, these films are forgotten by the white mainstream, so we have to do our job and lift them up ourselves. So this week's You Better Act Award goes to, drumroll please, Kim Waynes in Pariah. So, Pariah is another black lesbian film. This one is set in New York City, and it's about a young woman who lives in the Bronx and leads a double life between her religious family and the queer life that she yearns to lead. Do you see a pattern here? This is kind of a big theme in queer life, so it is also a big theme in queer cinema. This film was directed by Dee Reese, who's also known for directing the film Mudbound that is on Netflix. Uh, this is another film that I would definitely put in the new queer canon of the 2010s. Kim Waynes plays the uber-religious mother in this movie. And I almost didn't recognize her at first. If you don't know who Kim Waynes is, she's mostly known for comedy. She is part of the Waynes family. The Waynes brothers are her brothers. Um, she was on In Living Color, and she is in a lot of projects and films that the Waynes brothers do. Um, we'll definitely dig into this movie at some point. This will be a nitty-gritty at some point, because I fucking love this movie. Um, so I'm not going to go into too much detail. But I will say that for a comedian, there's absolutely nothing funny about this role. Um, and I love to see comedians really uh, stretch themselves and dig into some meaty dramatics. Um, and she's brilliant. She's just brilliant in this movie. Uh, so stream Pariah on Stars and rent it on Amazon and iTunes. So, some food for thought before we close. Are there any spaces in which you have felt like an other? And how have you coped with that? And have you had someone to do that with, to cope with? Um, like in Rafiki, like in Pariah, and also like in Jezebel, interestingly enough. Uh, leave a comment on uh, SFB Society. Leave a comment on our Instagram. Follow us at Adventures in Black Cinema. And next week, I am so excited. We have a very special guest. We have Mr. Philip Henry on the show. And we will be getting into the nitty gritty of Sister Act 2, Back in the Habit. Thank you so much to our audio engineer, Matt Mozzarella, our producer, Angie, and our executive producer, Amanda Seals. Have a lovely day, y'all, and be blessed. Oh, it's over. Great.